Welcome to Beyond the Flight Deck podcast with United Airlines pilot and investment advisor, Alan Bewley, who will take you behind the scenes with airline pilot entrepreneurs, academics, and other professionals. And now, your host, Alan Bewley. Imagine you're an airline pilot showing up for a trip, and the company hands you an airplane with two degraded engines certain to fail at some point in the flight. You're told you have to take the airplane, replace both engines airborne while air-to-air refueling between engine changes. Think you'd have your hands full? Well, this is what it's like every day in organ transplant. My guest is Dr. David Weil, a lung transplant physician of 25 years, 10 of which he spent running the lung transplant team at Stanford University. In his recent memoir, Exhale, Dr. Weil recounts the emotional roller coaster of losing and saving lives. In our conversation, we talk about issues faced in aviation and medicine, including crew resource management and conflict resolution. We also discuss his failure to create a work-life balance conducive to being married with two small children. This and physician burnout played major roles in Dr. Weil leaving Stanford for consulting, settling down in his hometown of New Orleans. Today, he helps lung transplant teams around the country improve outcomes. Welcome, Beyond the Flight Deck. Welcome, Dr. David Weil, Beyond the Beyond the Flight Deck. I'm glad to have you. I appreciate you taking some time. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, just finished the book, Exhale. It was uh, it was outstanding, and not not sure what I expected from a transplant physician in, in the terms of a book, but it was it was truly heartfelt and it was outstanding. I appreciate that. Thanks for reading it. Yeah. Um, so let's start a little bit about. Uh, your history. Um, from what I read in the book, if I looked at your high school yearbook, nowhere in there would it say, David, you're going to be a transplant physician. Right. right? <laughs> I would agree with that. I was not exactly destined for success, I don't think. I um, I had kind of a typical, you know, New Orleans high school experience. I played sports. I went out a lot. Uh, I didn't pay a lot of attention to school. I was raised by a nurse and a physician and they they had some concerns in high school i was a straight c student in high school and did not have a lot of college choices to say the least yeah i hear you I, i'm not sure i would have survived in new orleans either right. uh so mountain brook alabama is a, hot, a far cry from from uh, new orleans so uh but that being said um your dad he was uh he was he practicing and, and then research how did his career play out yeah, so he was primarily a research physician, very successful at it. Um, he saw patients early on in his career, but as it evolved, he was much more attracted to the science and the research side than, than I, I ultimately became. But he, uh, he was primarily a researcher. In what field? In pulmonary medicine. So he was okay. a lung specialist and got interested in occupationally related lung diseases and became a world's expert in it. Okay. Uh, and was he a MD, PhD, or just, just an MD? He was just an MD. MD, yeah. just an MD. Okay. Um, well, living next to University of Virginia, I do have a lot of a few, one or two neighbors that are mud fuds, MD, yeah. PhDs, uh, yeah. interesting folks. So you get out of high school uh, and you end up going to two different schools for colleges, but you graduated from Tulane, correct? I did. I graduated from Tulane University in New Orleans and then went to medical school in New Orleans as well at Tulane. Did you know going into med school at Tulane that pulmonary was going to be your specialty following your father's footsteps? Or was it something that you um, kind of evolved while you were in med school? No, I was initially attracted actually to orthopedics. Um, I had a sports background that naturally fit in well with orthopedics, and I was initially attracted to that. And then the more and more I learned about the lung, the more likely it was that I was going to become a lung doctor. Um, but my first love actually was orthopedics just because, you know, it's very cool in a way if you have a sports background because you see yeah. the injury and you fix the injury and patients usually do quite well. So. Sure. Yeah. Get them back on the court, on the field. Yeah. How did that evolve into transplant? Where in, where in medical school? Okay. Pulmonary. Was it always transplant or did it evolve into that? And so what, what point do you think in your 
training or school? Yeah, I write about this in the book. I, you know, just like a lot of our careers, you know, you, you, you either go to door A or door B and suddenly something's open to you. And early on in my career, and I write about a story in the book where I found myself on the kidney transplant service mm -hmm. as an intern when one of the upper level residents got sick. And I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. We, you know, we transplanted a, a gentleman the first night I was on call that had, hadn't peed in, you know, 11 years and we put a new kidney in him, and suddenly it's happening. And I just couldn't believe how you could turn around somebody's life with an operation. And so while I ultimately did not become a kidney transplant doctor, once I got interested in the lungs, again, serendipity, it just so happened that lung transplant was starting in, in the United States at about the same time I started training in pulmonary medicine in the early 90s. So it was really just, I, I, I was, it was all luck. I was standing there in Denver and they were starting a lung transplant program and I signed up to be on that service and, and off I went. After Tulane, you went to Denver because at some point you were with a hospital in Texas. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. When I finished training, there was a, a private hospital in Texas that wanted to open up a new lung transplant program. And, you know, I'm at age 31 or two at that point. And they asked me to come down and set it up and run it and everything else. I, um, as, as most things in my career, I was a little bit out on my skis on that one. <laughs> and, um, so I opened up this lung transplant program and, and we got it rolling pretty well for a few years. And then um, then it was time to make a change and uh, yeah. went to Birmingham. Your first stint in Denver, you you mentioned, and did you go to Denver uh, to back up a little before the Texas stint? Did you go to Denver because of the pulmonary transplant, uh, pr the program that was cranking up up there? Is that yeah, partly. And then also a big component of that decision was it probably, it, it not probably, it did have the best pulmonary training in the world at that point. Um, a, there was 110 full-time pulmonologists there, which makes wow. it the best program in the world. They uh, took five of us each year to train. And so I worked like the Dickens to get a spot there. And so I wanted very much to go there to train. And then- yeah. The uh, icing on the cake was that they were opening up a lung transplant program right when I got there. Right. Yeah. Like you said, you're right place, right time for sure. Where, where is or where was during that time? You said that lung transplant was relatively kind of a new, newish thing. Where, where in the world, U.S. somewhere else, what was the earliest kind of leading edge uh, lung transplant? Yeah. Going on. Actually, they tried the first lung transplant operation at the University of Mississippi in 1963, um, and it was a one-off. So basically, the patient died, didn't do very well. And so there wasn't any activity until the early 80s when the Toronto program started the procedure, and they did have success. And then Stanford got into it actually very early on in the 80s. But it really wasn't until the early 90s that there were programs in America starting to do it. And, and when I say starting to do it, that means that there was probably 10 or 15 programs opening up in the early 90s, Denver included. Uh, whereabouts in the rest of the world? Were other countries kind of working on this about the same time? Yeah, mo most prominently in England. And I was, I was actually, I spent my fourth year of medical uh, school in England in 1989, 88 and 89. And they were actually performing their first lung transplants in, in the late 80s at the hospital that I was working at. Again, it was right place, right time. Yeah, and that's great. That's pretty interesting. H how were those first, I mean, kind of look back and, and, and this, you know, you look back in the whole book. I don't know if you really dove into this, but do you remember the first team that you were on, the first transplant and, and whether the outcome was good or bad, but how, you know, that was for you is just a, an amazing milestone in your life. Yeah. I mean, the first team I was on was at Denver and the team was amazing. I mean, and there was only, I say the team, there was three of us and there was, <laughs> there was a surgeon, a pulmonologist who I talk about in the book named Marty Zamora, who's a friend and yep. mine. And then there was me and I was at the late, I was at the sort of the end of my pulmonary training. So I wasn't quite full fledged yet, but I was far enough along that I could manage. And so it really was the three of us and we got along great. We, you know, we did some great stuff and 
the first 20 transplants we did did beautifully and i was like this seems pretty easy <laughs> yeah right right and you know i kind of got spoiled because fred grover who was the surgeon was excellent marty uh is you know one of the smartest physicians i've ever worked with and you know and i was just sitting there trying to soak it all in so those first cases i remember very well and they really rooted me to the field they made me fall in love with it. yeah no i can imagine so you guys clicked pretty well as a team yeah. um you know i guess the stigma of a surgeon is the big-headed you know uh, and but you guys were all in such a specialty. It, it clicked pretty well. Something I, I, I've mentioned to you a little bit before is, you know, there's history with surgeons and and the team that's, that are in a surgery or even like something like this, the whole transplant team, and also that equates to us in the cockpit. Um, there were there was kind of a final straw accident in the late '70s at United Airlines where we had a captain that allowed an airplane to run out of fuel and crash because they were spending time looking to see if the landing gear was down. In other words, they were fighting over a light bulb and instead they ran out of fuel and crashed the airplane. And so United started a program that was called Command Leadership Resource Management. They kind of developed a toolbox for co-pilots, flight engineers, and captains to work together to there not be kind of a, a one-man show, if you will. And it's today it's called CRM, Command Re uh, Crew Resource Management. At some point in your career, starting with the three of you, you start working with a team as a team, but you have personality differences, you have opinion differences. How was that at the onset with the three of you? Because you did work so well, did it, uh, you know, did it make it harder for you to work with differing personalities down the road or did it prepare you to deal with that? Yeah, I think, you know, it was interesting. I think at that stage of the development of lung transplant, we were all figuring it out. No one really had the corner on knowledge, experience, expertise. And so I don't know what the analogy would be with regard to airline pilots, yeah. perhaps not the Wright brothers, but maybe a little, a little bit after that. Um, you know, and so we were all figuring it out. And that went on for some time. You know, I would say the first half of my career there was, you know, much more, you know, congenial atmosphere. Um, it went on to my time in Birmingham and, it, you know, it just continued that we actually got along well because it was a real mission oriented, um, especially at that point. I think as I write about the book, it became less so, um, but yeah. definitely in the first half of my career, you know, we were all, we were like brothers in arms going to going to battle each day. And we really took care of each other, which I think mattered and it probably matters in your field as well. Yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, all right. From uh, how long were you in Denver that that time? Yeah, uh, three years. OK. And then you go to Texas and they want you to crank up and run a program. And you're a three year veteran of this industry now, right, of this specialty. Um, how did that go? Did it feel like you were uh, kind of writing the rules as you went along? Yeah, we were definitely, you know, kind of, we were making it up as we went along and we were actually doing surprisingly well um, for a few years after I got to Dallas, we were, you know, transplanting folks in a, at a pretty large clip and in a big private hospital, I think it was a 900 bed hospital in North mm -hmm. Dallas. And we were doing really well. And the surgical team I worked with uh, was good. Um, as time went on, I think our inexperience really showed, um, you know, like a lot of fields, inexperience eventually bubbles to the top and ours did. And we were all pretty young and pretty inexperienced and it eventually caught up with us. Now, your surgeons, had they had uh, much transplant experience or were they general surgeons or pulmonary surgeons? They had about the same transplant experience I had. So they had essentially gotten trained in the specialty, but there's a big difference. And there may be in the with pilots as well. There's a difference between when you're training and somebody is looking over your shoulder to when you're actually flying the plane and no one's looking over your shoulder. And I think that that's the difference is we had some people that had trained at some good places, but probably weren't quite as experienced as it added as we needed them to be. We get these stupid questions all the time as pilots. Uh, and, and I know you do as well. It's funny to me that you mentioned Grey's Anatomy in the book, because I think that's probably the worst medical show ever when it comes to technical medicine. Um, <laughs> and I know nothing about medicine. If a surgeon is a lung transplant surgeon, 
Is that is that surgeon only trained in, in lungs or do they do different organs? Well, it used to be, and this has changed over the course of my career, it used to be that most of those folks were thoracic surgeons, meaning they just operated on the lungs. And then as time went on, it, the field evolved toward having cardiothoracic surgeons do the transplant operations. And those folks, of course, do heart surgery. I, I think a lot of those surgeons are very technically adept. They're used to sewing on small things. And, you know, a lot of them are, you know, extremely facile. But one thing that hasn't worked as well is that those surgeons have a big cardiac practice. So they're doing a lot of heart surgery every day. And, you know, one of my views is that it's very difficult to be good at several things at the same time. And there are not that many cardiothoracic surgeons that are excellent in transplant or excellent in cardiac surgery and excellent yeah. in transplant. It's just, it's just hard to do. So the main purpose of this podcast is other pilots that want to broaden out from just flying like I do with my investment practice and start some other side business. You just hit on a, a topic that's, you know, it's hard to be good at really good at more than one thing, especially if it's in your professional life. It's interesting that you say that. Yeah. Cause at, at United and at the airlines, we, I fly a 737 right now. There's a reason I don't jump in a seven five next week and fly it. Cause they want you to be proficient, current and good at that airplane. So yeah, it makes makes complete sense. How long were you there in Dallas? And when and when you were there, did you work with pretty much the same team or and how big was that team? Yeah, the team was about 20 people in Dallas and I was there for four years. And, you know, it was a, it was a very intense experience. I was the only one of my type of doctor in the hospital. So I was 24 seven, 365 kind of experience. And my wife tells the story that the only days I got off were to go on our honeymoon. Uh, <laughs> we actually had to um, ask another transplant physician from out of town to cover me. So um, it, it was a it was a pretty tough four years. So as an airline captain, you show up to work and you might interact with, you know, a, a gate agent, obviously your other pilot, uh, your flight attendants. You might deal with maintenance. You might deal with operations and some some issues. Um, so you're dealing with differing per personalities, differing, you know, I mean, your job basically is to oversee and delegate. Like what, what, what did your specialty become when yeah. you left? And then how, how, uh, do you think that your personality and your, your, your skill set allowed you to play that role well, or was it hard for you to do? Yeah, it, it actually, it actually came pretty naturally to me. And I think that this was the sports, you know, background. I mean, these are team sports that we play and, mm -hmm. You know, a transplant team is not just doctors. It's a multidisciplinary team of physicians, non-surgeons, surgeons, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, social workers, dietitians, respiratory therapists, infectious disease specialists, you name it. So by the time I got to Stanford, for instance, it, there was 55 people on the team right. and I was in charge of them. I, I do think that by and large, my personality fit pretty well, you know, to lead a team effort. That's not to say that there wasn't conflict that uh, I got myself involved with and that there definitely was. And I write about that in the book. Yeah. But I think, that it was, I think that one thing that I was able to do well is get get those folks pulling the right way most of the time, not all of the time. Um, it's very difficult to take a team of 55, for instance, and expect them to show up for work every day with the same attitude, the same level of commitment. Mm -hmm. That's hard because I tried to show up every day with that same level of commitment because I felt like I had to. Yeah. But it's hard when you have a big team like that. It's different personalities. And building the team is hard. Um, you have to go through lots of people to get to the ones that you really want to work with. So how does the conflict resolution process play out. So for, for example, if we have a, for back of letter term, uh, lack of a better term, personality conflict between two pilots or a pilot and a flight attendant or flight attendant group, um, we have a professional standards committee that we have a pilot's professional standards committee. And we also have one with the flight attendants separate from the company. It's a union committee position. I've actually been the standards chair in Washington at one point where if a pilot has a problem with another pilot, they go to this committee and kind of, hey, this happened on this trip. I'm kind of concerned that we're not going to be able to operate safely going forward unless we resolve this issue. It, you know, 
you've got a pretty significant group of people there, whether it's the surgeons and non-surgeon physicians yourself, and then people down like to social workers. Is there somewhere for each level or each person in that on your team, do they come straight to you with, with an issue, whether it's with you or someone else, or what was the best way, you know, especially when you're trying to do something there that really hadn't been done, what was the best way for people to kind of air the grievances, if you will? Well, it sounds like you, you guys have a much better formalized plan than we ever had. Um, you know, there, I think increasingly in hospitals is an attempt to, to go toward these conflict resolution systems in place. But frankly, I was the arbiter mostly of our team dynamics. And then when it involved me, it just became, you know, power politics, basically. It was who had the most leverage and the most seniority within the hospital system. And, you know, that that's difficult. But, you know, per perhaps the medical field could learn from, you know, organizations like yours because we don't, we, don't, we do not have a good system for that. In fact, most of the work, and I'm sure we'll get to this now, is I I'm dealing with transplant programs that don't work very well in a mm -hmm. And 99% of them have team dynamic issues. And I become the, uh, the person that has to sort of manage through those team dynamic issues. Yeah. Again, very difficult when you may be involved in the, in the conflict itself. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's well known in the consulting industry that surgeons and airline pilots, strong-willed people, you get them into a room with someone that may be, uh, you know, below them on the pecking order and they don't, always make the best decisions, but then they also don't take input from others. So uh, right. I know that there are a lot of consultants that work with our group and with, and with physicians groups. So, all right. So you, when you left uh, and went to Birmingham from Dallas, uh, you left, uh, it was just, what, what was the opportunity in Birmingham? I mean, you were running the show in Dallas. So yeah, I, and I went to Birmingham and I was recruited as the director of that program. And I think the main impetus to move was my my interest in being in a university setting, because at that time, and it's still true today, most transplantation happens in a university setting and for better or for worse. And UAB gave me the opportunity to walk into a well-developed program that was doing actually really well and offer me a leadership position. And so we, my wife and I, we had just recently been married took that opportunity because we didn't think another one was going to come around just like that. And so I got the opportunity to get back into a university setting versus a private setting. And the university setting was a little more familiar to me and also was lucky enough to work with a group that already knew how to do it and had fantastic surgeons, many of whom I am still very close with and had a great team already in place. So it was a unique opportunity and one that I didn't think I could pass up. So that was move number one for yep. you and Jackie after you're married. Yep. Um, uh, how long did you end up in Birmingham? Uh, you and I were there around the same time. And I think we left shortly after you guys left. Yeah. Uh, and, and then what, you know, is there any, is there any big takeaway from Birmingham and was the move in, you talk about in the book, moving to Denver, mainly, you know, you liked Birmingham as a town, but there was something else you guys wanted when you were starting your family. Yeah, I, I think that we were looking, I, I had had a great experience in Denver before, just from a personal standpoint, and we were looking for more, you know, kind of a West, Western or West Coast sort of feel to, to what we were um, trying to do. We thought we would have it start a family there. And so when the folks at Denver were saying, why don't you come back? We thought from a personal standpoint, it would probably be the best move. There was nothing really from a professional standpoint that pulled me away from Birmingham. Like I said, it was a very good professional experience, but it was, it was more of a personal decision move to, to go to Denver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You don't spend, you don't spend a lot of time in the book on Birmingham. Uh, as far as the hospital goes, I assume, uh, like you said, you, you worked with a team there that was real experienced, was doing a, a very good job already. So, um, when you went, we'll just say went through Birmingham on to Denver, were the roles you played in Dallas to Birmingham to Denver that much different or are they fairly? Fairly similar. The only thing about moving to Denver was, is I really wasn't in charge of the show. And I actually welcomed that when I moved there. I had been in charge, quote unquote, for seven years post-training at that point. And I actually welcomed, and I thought that that was gonna be okay with me. It ultimately turned out not to be okay yeah. with me. 
but I thought that that was going to be okay with me just to, you know, have lead a very active personal and professional life there, but not necessarily be the one in charge. And that was, a, that was a miscalculation on my part. Um, I had uh, leaderships kind of in my blood and something that I wanted. And that probably was something I didn't put enough uh, weight into when I decided to go to Denver. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, I, I can assume you looked at all the hours you were on the phone, you know, in Birmingham running the team or even in Dallas thinking, hey, I'm actually going to wake up in the morning, not have been on the phone all night with the Oregon Center or whatever. When you get to Denver, how big was the team there and where did you fit? What was your role there? I was sort of the right hand in Denver. I was sort of second in command of a team that was really fairly small. It was 20, 25 people, which is fairly small for a transplant program of that size. A great surgical team. There were four surgeons on the team. They were fantastic. I'm still friends with. We hung out together socially. Um, you know, couldn't have had better kind of team dynamics at the, at, at that point. Um, and and the program performed well, um, really well. And I was sort of the second, you know, second guy there, which again seemed attractive at the time, but then ultimately wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, so from the seven years you had left there, you had been gone from Denver. Was it seven years? Yeah. Um, they grew from you three guys to 20 something. So they, yeah. they leaps and bounds from when you left. Yeah. 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 Um, did you replace someone when you went there or they were just trying to grow? They were trying to grow. There were more and more patients to take care of. I was already experienced there. I was a known entity to them and they needed somebody that they could, you know, trust at the time. I, 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 um, you know, think it was, I was, it was important to the guy that was in charge, Marty Zamora, that he have somebody that he trusted with the patient. And, you know, that was ultimately the decision, you know, and I think that that's true of any organization. The, The top guy really needs somebody next to him, somebody that, you know, that he or she can trust. And I think that that's what was attractive from his standpoint. Yeah. From the day you left Denver to the day you got back, those seven years in between, you had countless numbers of very challenging medical situations. But what about from a management perspective? Um, but also, you you had just been married when you moved to Birmingham, so you hadn't been married that long. Um, managing work-life balance is something that, quite frankly, I've struggled with since I've been in dual careers now for 20 years, run my own practice for over 16 um, and my wife, Carmen, lets me know when I'm not balancing that well enough. Um, when you got to Birmingham and you were running that team and then you get, and then you move on to Denver, um, talk about maybe one or two big challenges from maybe a managerial standpoint at work, but also trying to start figuring out that work-life balance with your new young bride. Yeah, I, I think that it, you know, it's, it was the same. It was a challenge uh, in short. I think it was the same. I had the same level of commitment in terms of, you know, transplantation is a 24-7 job and I, you know, I, I needed to be committed to it. But what I think changed is that we started having children and um, the demands on Jackie became higher and higher and my absence was more and more noticed, I think. And I think that... I did not do a particularly good job of laying the foundation early on in my career that family would be first. Uh, I did not do that well. And I think that one of the lessons I've learned that it, you know, that it always has to be first. And I think that it's something that did not come naturally to me. And perhaps it was my father's experience where, you know, he worked so hard and, you know, so many long hours. I just got used to, you know, the husband and the father being away at work. And I, I, I'm afraid I didn't do a particularly good job of it, uh, of, you know, paying attention to the home base. And I think we also moved, you know, a, a, a few times early on in my career that made it even more difficult for Jackie. Was there something you could have done at the hospital from a manager, from the department head perspective to give you a little more time at home? I mean, or, or was your attitude, hey, this is my job. I've got to do everything. Yeah, there's definitely a control enthusiast. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think that that's, that's how transplant doctors, I mean, that's what we're sort of known for. Uh, 
And I think that that's one of the pitfalls of the career, of the career, maybe true with pilots as well. I mean, I assume that control is a big part of flying an airplane, I would guess. Um, and, you know, we tend, and I have the tendency to do everything myself and not, not delegate and not trust other people to do it correctly and not really sign off of work. I was pretty much always at work. Even when I was at home, I was at work. And I think that that's, you know, I don't know if we pick our field because we're like that or our field makes us like that, but that certainly was characteristic of me. Yeah. Even though I have full-time employee, I've had part-time as well. When I'm on the computer doing something, I'm like, you know, I know I'm supposed to give this to her, but all I have to do is click seven things here and that task is done. And it's taking me a long time to go, nope, that belongs to Elizabeth, my, my employee. She, she does that walk away. So even just small tasks, you know, so I get that. The, The big move then was you're recruited by Stanford from Denver, uh, to go run their program. And in the book, um, I think you said with the, the year prior to you showing up, they had done like 11 transplants, uh, how many had Denver done in that last year? How many was Birmingham doing a year? Um, Birmingham and Denver were a similar size program where they, they would do 35 to 45 transplants a year. Um, Stanford had fallen on tough times with their transplant program. In fact, the CEO, when I interviewed with her, asked me if we should continue to keep the program open, which is not exactly what you want to hear when you're right. in the job. So they, they, it was like an old house, you know, they'd been at it for a while, but it badly needed renovation. It was, it was a bit of a mess when I got there, um, both from an outcome standpoint, a structural standpoint, there was really no team there. Um, I, I had to sort of build all of it from scratch, which I relished. I was, that's why I took the job. I was attracted. Was Hannah born in Birmingham or Denver? Both my kids were actually born in Denver. 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 Okay. Ava, right before we left, my second child. So third move with your wife, Jackie, first move with the kids. Um, and, and you did talk about in the book how your wife was a little bit weary of moving to, to Palo Alto because uh, yeah. she liked life in Denver. The kids were young. Um, whether she expressed it to you or not, did she know that what you were going to was going to be less David and more, more no David around the house? I think she sensed that. And she also, I think, you know, felt like she had input into the move, but she also knew that I wanted to do it. And I think that, you know, particularly with the job at Stanford, it was so obviously going to be a great resume thing for me. And it turned out it has. I mean, you know, I'm going to be the former Stanford whatever for probably the rest of my life. and so we both felt like it would probably not make the situation of work-life balance better, but that we should do it. And, you know, California is, you know, difficult for, you know, people to move into if you've lived in other parts of the country, it's very expensive. Um, it's got its own little rhythm to it. Uh, Palo Alto is a very, you know, tech industry, Stanford industry. Mm-hmm wound up sort of place to, to live. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's not an easy place to move into. It would be sort of similar to moving to New York city, I suppose, you know? Yeah. So that move you made in the, the time of your life, um, there are a lot of pilots post COVID right now who are new with the airline. They've got a young family. Maybe they've come from a regional carrier or the military. They've got a young family and their first year or two at United, they they were facing maybe getting furloughed from the company because of COVID. And so a lot of them, like I said, have kind of started looking at other avenues. So a lot of those people are looking into a side business or some some something they can get going to kind of ensure their future finances while they're still flying and raising the family. When you look back at this now, is, is there anything you could have done, again, back to work-life balance, is, is there anything you could have done because I know knowing you, you got to Stanford and jumped in with both feet. And is there any way you could have walked into that and kind of laid down some ground rules for yourself or something? And, and I'm asking because there are other people that may be watching this that are going, hey, look, this guy had a busy life already with a young family and a career, but now he's jumping into this whole new arena with a new town and everything. Anything you think of that you could have done looking back to make that a little easier for you and the family to balance yeah. all that? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there was a number of things that I could have done, you know, in retrospect. Now, I, you know, we're, we're all built the way we're built. And, you know, unfortunately, the way I was built was to go at it pretty hard, you know, right when I got there. And I, we had, because we had to rebuild the team from scratch, I did not have that right-hand person that I could really rely on. And I think in retrospect, I would have recruited uh, a right-hand person. Instead, I was more experienced. I guess I was seven or eight years in at that point, post-training. And I had a team that was very young. And I think that in, in retrospect, I guess, I could have recruited somebody that was more like how Marty Zamora recruited me to come to Denver somebody that I could really trust. But so I didn't have that person and I was left sort of saying, well, if, if something needs to get done, I guess it's going to be me. And yeah. that turned out not to be the best decision in the world, but that's how it went down. Yeah, no, sure. I understand that. I understand that. Small program, relatively small. Uh, and you talk about regulators, insurance companies, right? Those are the people looking over your shoulder. Well, we have regulators in the airline industry and our insurance company are people buying tickets. If we put smoking holes in the ground, regulators are going to be all over us and people are going to stop buying tickets. Yeah. And we do insure, I think, uh, the, the uh, liability, you know, we self-insure part of it. And, and so other people are going to start asking questions. So were the regulators and the insurers on Stanford's back when you got there? Yeah, I mean, from from the get go, we had lost insurance business. We had lost carriers confidence. Um, and so at the beginning, when I got there, a big component of my job was to convince them that they needed to send their patients back to us. And their response, generally speaking, was show us the results and we'll send the patients to you. Unfortunately, we had difficulty showing results or might have difficulty showing results because we didn't have any patients coming to see us. Mm -hmm. So what I had to do is build up a, a patient base in other ways, using the patients insurance companies that were willing to work with us. But some of the bigger carriers, especially the ones that were California centric, just wouldn't do it until we showed a couple years of results. And ultimately we were able to show those results and then those patients came back and the program exploded. Um, yeah, it's hard to show results when you don't have any cases to work with. That's right. And um, we were able to transplant the first year, 26 patients, my first year there. And that was actually a number that nobody would have even conceived of because of the difficulties we had attracting patients um, to the center. It, it, it really was, it was demoralizing for the people that were there because we thought we were really good at it, but the patients weren't coming yet. So when it comes to outcomes uh, in dealing in investments, we talk about outcomes all the time because uh, the variability of outcomes and in inflation, interest rates, markets, whatnot. It, um, I would think it'd be very difficult to judge a transplant team's outcomes because it can be highly subjective. It's kind of like a, a trial lawyer only taking cases they know they can win. Right, right. Right. So how hard is that for them to judge a program over time do they do they look into whether or not you only took the cases with the best set of donor lungs and the and the and the, the best shaped patient for the transplant? Yeah, we 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 have one metric really that matters in transplant, and for better or for worse, and it's the one year survival metric. So how many patients are survive surviving after one year in your transplant program? It gets compared that number gets compared to an expected survival number that is a derivative of all the factors you mentioned, the donor, the recipient, all sorts of different characteristics. What, what is, diff, is difficult for transplant programs, and I work with them every day on this fact, this factor, is risk calibration. Mm -hmm. Take not enough risk, your expected number goes way up because you're perceived as being a risk-averse program. Right. If you take too much risk, the patients don't survive. And so finding that sweet spot is really difficult. And of all the, all the things that I struggled with during my career, trying to find that exact sweet spot was probably the most difficult, both on the donor and the recipient side. Yeah. So you're right. And the regulators are ruthless. I mean, basically, they, you know, they can shut your show down if you're not doing it right. So it, it didn't it doesn't seem like in the book it took a couple of years to kind of get some momentum rolling. Yeah, we, 
Yeah, we got better the first year, you know, markedly better where people are sort of turning around the hospital and saying, whoa, you know, the program was frankly hemorrhaging money and not doing well with patients before. And then we turned that around really in the first year. No, we didn't get it to the point we were going to get it to, but yeah. we turned it around in the first year. And I think that that got everyone's attention. And then I think in everything, it's probably true in your field, kind of momentum builds on itself. You know, it's nothing succeeds like success, you know? Yeah. So we got that rolling along and ended up having, you know, a long stretch of really good outcomes and good volume. So the people that count the money in the hospital were really happy because the more cases that we did, um, the, the more money they made. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think when I hit about 30 clients, United Pilot clients with my investment practice, I don't know how long ago that was, it, it became critical mass. It became the snowball effect where there were enough people out there referring me to others, flying with other pilots. My name was starting to get out there that I finally I pulled back from talking to people about it or doing any sorts of real marketing or advertising. So uh, yeah, there's, there's going to be that critical mass, like you said, uh, and momentum for you guys. Looking in from the outside, and we'll talk about more of that in a second, looking in from the outside, was it obvious to you where the problems were or did it take a good bit of digging? No, you know, so I, I do um, a lot of research before, you know, I did a lot of research before taking the Stanford job. And then now when I try to help transplant programs, I, I know what to look for and I do a lot of research. So I knew exactly what the problem was and that's what attracted me to the job. It's because some problems you see in transplant programs aren't fixable. They just aren't, you know, you would have to wipe out the whole team and get a whole new team in there and you'd have to change the hospital administrators and, you know, all sorts of things. But Stanford's problem was pretty, pretty discreet. It, they had trouble with the pulmonary medicine side of the transplant program. And they had a great surgical team that had been there for a long time and knew how to do it, but they were, they were not experienced on the medical side. So for me, it was pretty easy decision. I was thinking that I could bring the medical, you know, quality to the program. And I was pretty certain that in order to do that, it was going to be a heavy recruitment effort. I had to get all the nurses. I had to get other pulmonary physicians. I had to get, you know, the multidisciplinary team filled out. But again, it was like Stanford's an easy place to recruit to in many ways because mm -hmm. the is a good brand name. And once everyone saw the success we were having, it became easy to put the team together and we got really quality people. Um, it sounded like at some point the program did kind of plateau and you had a kind of a, I don't know if it was a retrenchment a little bit in, in success rate. How did that happen? How long into the well, process was that? Yeah, so this happened quickly, unfortunately. We went about 10 years of the best outcomes in the country. And in 18 months, our three surgeons left. Mm -hmm. So um, for all different reasons, um, better jobs, retirement, whatever it is. And so in 18 months, we had what arguably were the best three surgeons that I could imagine working with to no one with any transplant experience. And where, you know, things get difficult with the transplant program is no matter who's there and who leaves, you have a waiting list full of people on the mm -hmm. pocket and they need experienced folks working on them. And the transplant surgery part of it is only six to eight hours of a, you know, hopefully a 20 year life. Yeah. But it's a critical six to right, eight. Right, right, right. Sure, sure. <laughs> Um, we were left then with two people that remained that were sort of put into place because they were, you know, they were doing some other things and they were put into place to do the lung transplant surgeries that didn't have the experience for it. And everyone pretty much agreed on that and pretty much knew that. But that's that's kind of where we were left with. You know, Did you bring anybody in or did you stick with the team you had left there? No, we um, we, we had a lot of discussion about who to bring in, what, what were we looking for? And we, in fact, interviewed a few people and for a variety of reasons, it didn't, it didn't work out. So we went along and transplanted with those uh, two, two guys who were great guys, really were good guys, but they just didn't have experience in it. Yeah. And we 
we ended up transplanting with them for two or three years. So let's talk about interacting with people a little bit. Um, you know, when, you know, this morning I'd gotten to an airplane in Washington and flew one leg up here to Boston and my first officer is a person I never met before. So it's, you know, and we got to operate this airplane with a whole load of passengers on board. There were two very, very different patients in the book. You had Tina and you had Dexter and Tina was like your 25 year old younger sister or cousin, right? You guys are dropping F-bombs with each other. You're, you know, cussing each other at you, whatever. But in the end, you, it sounded like you had a really, really concrete uh, patient-physician relationship. At the same time, she'd seem to become like your little sister, where then you had Mr. No-Nonsense Dexter, who was like, you put me in, coach. I'm here. You know, no laughing, no games. Not only with patients, but with, you know, you had a big team. And you was over 50 physicians and, like I said, social workers and nurses, practitioners, so forth. Um, how hard was that? How hard was that? Whether it was patients or all in between dealing with all these different personalities. Cause when you run a business, you have to be able to do that. Yeah. I like, I actually liked that. And it actually went well for most of my career. Cause I think, you know, different people need different things. Patients or team members need different things. Some of them respond to, you know, an arm around the shoulder and some of them respond to a sharp word or two. And that's true. That's true of the people we treat. Some of them need tough love and some of them need a softer approach. Um, and the team members that, that we had that I think we were so successful for about 10 years is that they were never unsure about the mission and they knew where we were trying to go and what we were trying to do. And they were never unsure about my commitment to it. And I think yeah. the patients felt that. Now there were times I think later on where you know my commitment you know, got a little bit sideways with some of the people in the hospital and that, you know, that, that happens, you know, and sometimes, you know, you, you get into trouble when, you know, you're very mission oriented, you know, your head down, but I think it also really helped us in the phase that we were in, we were building the best transplant program in the country and there's no other way to do it than mission orientation. Um, so I think with the two patient examples you bring up, you know, it's very obvious that, you know, my engineer friend Dexter needed the facts mm -hmm. and needed to process that like an engineer would, where my 25 year old patient Tina, you know, was a free spirit and she needed to feel that I felt, you know, mm -hmm. needed that part of me. And, you know, fortunately, I could generally provide both, which was good. Yeah. yeah. There's a, a good portion of the book talking about kind of how things were maybe getting on edge with you and the staff because of your mission oriented. Um, so your one patient, Amanda, who had had a transplant and uh, she was a, was she a cystic fibrosis yeah. patient? What was the difference between cystic and pulmonary fibrosis? Is it yeah, so cystic fibrosis is an inherited disease that it affects nearly every organ system that we have, including the lungs and most of the patients die of um, respiratory failure ultimately. It happens early on in life. It, it manifests itself. Pulmonary fibrosis is a different disease. It's confined to the lungs. As far as we know, it's not inherited, although there is a familial um, uh, variant of it. And okay. it's really confined, you know, only to the lungs. So you replace the lungs and all, you know, all, all goes well at that point. Okay. And those things don't typically come back with a new set no. of lungs? No, they don't. And the, the pulmonary fibrosis patients are older too. They're more like 55 or 60 when we transplant them. Whereas cystic fibrosis, these were like my kids. They were, you yeah. know, teenagers or 20 year, 25 year olds. Yeah. Uh, how old was Amanda? Amanda was t 27 when we did okay. a transplant, but she was a teenager when she got her first. Yeah. Question about that. You do a transplant with a teenager and they come back at 27 needing a second one. Going into it, and we'll talk about your conflict with the doctor, the surgeon, when, when she's otherwise healthy and you otherwise, the team says, yeah, she can otherwise handle the transplant physically, uh, medically. Um, what, what would say, no, nah, we, we shouldn't do a second one. Is it, I mean, if she's medically doing well, then you just go ahead and say, yeah, let's see if we can find our second set of lungs. Or is there, is there a way of knowing that if you do have a second successful transplant, that she just won't go down the same path again? Yeah, I mean, the only person that we would do a second transplant in is somebody that we didn't have a choice, you know, that in order to save her life, we had to do a second transplant. 
So, you know, Amanda's situation, we had, you know, chronic rejection of her first transplant and she was going to die without it. So a lot of the decisions that we face are we don't really have a plan B that we think is going to work. Now, having said that, we turn down patients for retransplant fairly regularly because we think that the chance of success is so low that we, quite frankly, don't want to use a set of organs that could go to somebody else on our waiting list when the chance of success is so low. But in her, she had a high chance of success um, recognizing that retransplantation is more riskier than the first operation. Yeah. What you talk about with her transplant, her second transplant, is... Uh, you find a set of lungs, you pass it on to the surgeon, and regardless of what you said, he declined that first set of lungs, if I recall. And then a second set comes available, I think was better than the first maybe. But uh, again, you, you hand it over to the, to the surgeon, and once again, he wants to decline. Um, was there anybody else you could, did you bring anyone else into that conversation or, or in the book, it just seemed like it was just you and him. And finally you said, Hey, I'm the department head. This is what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, it really was just between, you know, he and I, and, and, you know, we, we probably had the most tense discussions around the donor um, and that's happening all over the country. That wasn't just happening in Stanford, you know, for the, for the surgical team, the easiest thing, quote unquote, and none of it's easy, but the easier thing is to turn down the organs because, you know, they have so many logistical problems. They have to fly out in the middle of the night to get the lungs. They may have operations the next day that they have to cancel on very sick patients. They have all kinds of pressures working on them. That's why we need to rethink the whole system. But nonetheless, we, on my side of things, we're looking at a waiting list filled with sick people that if we don't do the transplant, they're gonna die. They may not die tonight, but they may die next week. And so those two tensions come together in those conversations around organ donors. And that's when conflict really happens is, you know, when, you, when you're not on the same page about the mission. And, you know, you, you can see from the book when we had more exper inexperienced team members, you know, they didn't quite understand that turning down organs for transplant doesn't mean that we're just going to wait till next week. There might not be a next week for that. Yeah. Day. yeah. No, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Since there's got to be a good fit for that organ in the, in the patient. Yeah. Um, looking back um, and we'll talk about that outcome uh, at that point, when you guys were kind of button heads over this thing, um, is there someone you maybe look back and go, you know, I should have brought in so-and-so to kind of mediate this, or is this something that you do now when you're consulting with? with I, I do that in my consulting practice, but at Stanford, there really wasn't any anybody, especially after our three more experienced surgeons left. I mean, there was really no one else that I could talk to. You know, we had made an agreement that, you know, I would, since I had the most experience, I would get the go or no go call. And, um, you know, sometimes that actually didn't translate into the night, you know, at nighttime at two in the morning, it didn't actually work that way, but that was, yeah. the, that was the agreement anyway. Yeah, sure. Sure. All right. So ultimately, um, he had difficulty getting her lungs out, uh, a lot of scar tissue and, um, what happened with the lungs that were coming in? Well, there's a timing aspect to it. And, you know, the night of transplant is quite a bit of choreography. You know, the timing has to really be perfect for it to work well. And what you don't want, well, I'll start out with what you do want. You do yeah. the chest open and the lungs out and the surgical team waiting for the new lungs to come in and then they get put right in. What happened in this case is that they were still by the time the new lungs came back in the ice chest, these guys were still trying to get her old lungs out. And the timing was off such that the old, the new lungs sat in the cooler too long. And the more lungs sit around outside of either a donor's body or a recipient's body, the more likely they are not to work. Yeah. And I assume this is something that just happens in all organ transplant. It does. It does. And it, it happens more frequently with teams that don't have the choreography and that don't communicate all through the night. In other words, okay, we're coming back. Are you ready? We're going to take them out of the donor. Are you ready for us to do that? And that's where, where the communication break breakdowns are where the problems really start. 
Yeah. I remember doing some organ transplant flights back in the nineties for UAB, actually some, yeah. cha- some charters and the, the, the surgeons show up on the phone, get in and out of the airplane on the phone, you know, with the ambulance waiting on them to their best efforts. They try and put the new damaged lungs, if you will, in, and uh, they can't close their chest, I believe. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Damaged lungs get bigger. They would swell and they get bigger. And so they get harder to put in. So while they would have probably fit, you know, if the timing had been right, they didn't fit in her chest um, because they were too swollen. So that's that's usually a bad thing. Is there ever a scenario where the swelling goes down once they get into the chest? Because you had another patient, I think it was your last patient that at Stanford yeah. that passed that they were too large. Yeah, yeah. There there are times when the, when you can actually get the swelling to come down um, and you know, it, it works out, but you, you know, whenever, whenever you have to do something like that, you're putting the patient more at risk each time, you know? And so what happened is, is that we were sort of rolling the dice, you know, as we let the lungs get bigger and bigger, you know, the less likelihood, the more likelihood that they wouldn't work. And mm-hmm. that's why you want to avoid the situation altogether. Cause it's just another risk factor you put the patient in. Every story about every patient was, uh, you know, every time one of your patients lived a happy life, I smiled. And every time that, that they didn't, uh, you know, I, uh, it got very emotional just listening to your book. So I can understand, especially, you know, the ones that you were near and dear to that you talked about, like Tina, like Amanda here, who went through the second transplant under 30 years old and, yeah. and unfortunately didn't make it. So is there something in your consulting that, you know, does it make sense to put something in place at where it doesn't end up being you and a surgeon at one o'clock in the morning, making, you know, butting heads and someone just says, no, we're doing this. Uh, and that's something we try and do in the airline industry is if there's a conflict between the two, even at the time in the cockpit, we bring in another source, whether it's our dispatchers yeah. maintenance. I, I think that that's very smart. And actually I provide that role now. I, you know, we did not have that because as I mentioned, we sort of, the more experienced people had, had gone. I mean, yeah. and, I think that that was a real problem for us. Um, we did not have that kind of adult supervision, if you will, to sort of help with these kind of things. I was the most experienced person and people recognized that, but at the same time, when when somebody would disagree with me, there was no one else to really turn to. And I think that that was very hard. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, just one or two last things here. I was looking at the FAA's criteria and certain pulmonary issues that a pilot may have and whether they may or may not fly. One that looked like was kind of a more complex issue with COPD. What is that? And is it something that can be dealt with long-term? Yeah, definitely. I mean, COPD stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The most classic ones are emphysema, cigarette-induced emphysema and asthma, that's considered a COPD. It's an obstructive lung disease. Most of these conditions are eminently manageable, you know, with medication. You know, there's a very, there's a very, there's a very rare person with COPD that that can't be managed. Those people do come see me for transplant and other things, but the vast majority of the people, even with cigarette induced emphysema can be managed quite effectively with medication. Okay. I think one of the issues with COPD that I read about, they talk about the, the issue that we go from sea level to 7,000 feet, 6,800 feet, right. you know, altitude in the airplane. Uh, can you see that causing problems? Yeah. I mean, if you have, let's just say a mild to moderate case of COPD, it can feel more severe when you're at that altitude and, and your cabin's pressurized to about 7,000 feet. Yeah. Six, six, 6,500 somewhere in there. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. And it, and it would manifest itself as oxygen desaturation. So their oxygen levels would drop, but there's a way to, there's a way to simulate that, you know, it shouldn't be a mystery. You could actually um, simulate that same kind of altitude and, and, get the data, see if that person's oxygen saturation drops or not. Um, and last last question, I, I read an article you wrote about uh, COVID's potential long-term effect on people's lungs and also what it could mean for lung transplant. What what are What's the industry seeing? What are we seeing as far as, I know it's no long-term effect, what, what kind of damage is COVID actually doing to people's lungs and why do you think it could lead to transplant? Yeah, there, there's a, 
there's obviously severe lung damage with COVID pneumonia and a subset of those patients simply won't survive without getting a lung transplant. Their lungs are so damaged that they're not reparable. And so what we're seeing more and more of is these kind of patients that are either stuck on a mechanical ventilator somewhere, or they can't get off of oxygen, they can't get out of the hospital. And there's been more than 100 lung transplants now performed for COVID. I think there's going to be a lot more. And I think it's going to be in that setting where somebody's acutely sick. Thank God there's less of those people now because of the vaccine. But then I also, I'm also worried about a tail effect where people had COVID pneumonia, they recovered, but their lungs were scarred from the severe pneumonia. And those folks may not recover that lung function and might need a transplant. And you think the lungs will be available? I do. I do. I think that the, the good news is the medication has improved for cystic fibrosis to the point that we're going to transplant less and less of those folks. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that I don't think that COVID is going to fill in all of those patients that had cystic fibrosis who no longer need a transplant, but it might fill in some of them. Yeah. If you, if, if someone had COVID never was hospitalized, but had a, you know, just a pretty nasty flu-like symptoms for five to 10 days with COVID. Are you concerned about them having some of this damage to their lungs? Are you talking about people that were hospitalized on oxygen ventilators even? Yeah, I'm talking about the latter. I don't think that person that got the flu-like symptoms and stayed in bed for a week is the one I'm talking about. I'm talking okay. about the people that had the full-blown COVID pneumonia and they were admitted to the hospital. And, some, and I think most of them would have been on mechanical ventilators, so sick really sick, not just at home sick. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. David Weil, Weil Consulting Group. The book is Exhale. Thanks for coming and uh, spending time with me today. I appreciate it, David. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate the conversation.